Society allows boys to be fierce, but not tender. Boys get called names that they're too tender, too sensitive, which harms boys and men because they don't have access to the healing power of compassion and acceptance. On the other hand, girls are allowed to be tender toward others, not necessarily to themselves. And we don't like women who are too action-oriented, who are too agentic, who are too you know, ambitious, who get angry. And so the fierce side is, is harder to access for people raised as women. Hi, and welcome to the All Too Well podcast. I'm your host, Erica Huss. I'm a wellness entrepreneur, a wellness expert, your wellness whisperer, and I'm here to make your journey towards better health just a little bit more comfortable and a little less cringy. And today we're talking about compassion, but we're talking about self-compassion, which is maybe not a concept that you are totally familiar with, even though it sounds pretty intuitive. I talked a little while ago about setting boundaries for yourself the way that we do for others. And there is also a concept that we need to better understand, which is about practicing compassion for yourself and really just allowing yourself a little bit of space, a little bit of grace, and kind of looking at yourself and treating yourself the way that you would your good friend. Because often we are super hard on ourselves and it does really no good in a micro sense and also in a macro sense. So I interviewed Kristen Neff, PhD, and she has done an enormous amount of work and research. Um, she's a psychologist who has done a tremendous amount of research on the whole topic of self-compassion. She has a number of courses. She has a number of books, including one called Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up claim their power and thrive. And as you might imagine, this was the type of conversation that really does kind of strike a nerve, hit home, hit me in the soft spot because I, like many of you, I'm very guilty of, I treat my friends with love and compassion and I often turn my voice on myself in a much harsher way. And it was really an opportunity to just take a little bit of time to think about that and chew on it a little bit. Um, And Kristen has just an absolutely wonderful perspective and an enormous amount of research and resource on this topic. So I really encourage you to take a breath and take a pause and be kind to yourself today and enjoy my conversation with Kristen Neff. Welcome here to Dr. Kristen Neff, who is very, very uh, expert and well-versed and goes deep on the topic of self-compassion, which I'm super excited to dive into. So thank you for coming and and having this conversation. I know that you um, are currently, uh, are you currently teaching at uh, University of Texas? Yes, I'm, I'm. I stopped teaching about a year ago. I'm still, uh, I'm still an associate professor. I still do some research, but I'm spending most of my time these days writing and teaching self-compassion. So, mm-hmm. yeah, and you have also your nonprofit, which is the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion. Yes, exactly. Yes, it takes a lot of time as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think this is a really interesting topic because I feel like. You know, the, the words compassion and empathy are certainly thrown around quite a lot these days, maybe, or not even these days, so much as it's maybe kind of a zeitgeist thing where we're all sort of hearing it more. 
I don't know that I can say that the concept of self-compassion is one that um, is quite as familiar for some folks. So I would love for you to start by maybe giving kind of a general overview of what that is, and then we can dive a bit into, you know, how people put it into practice and how to sort of identify and tell the difference in certain areas, because I have lots of questions on that. Sure, absolutely. So just starting with the word compassion, the word in Latin passion is suffering comes with. So it's basically how are we with suffering? And normally we think of compassion for others when we're there for others in a kind, supportive, helpful way when other people are suffering. And it's also the desire to alleviate suffering, to help in some way. And so self-compassion is really simple. It's just turning that, that desire, that kindness, that warmth inward in addition to also including it outward. Um, and so that's that's the easy way to think about it. And in, in my model, about, about 20 years ago, I decided I wanted to do some research on self-compassion. And I created a scale to measure it. And to do so, I had to have a very precise definition so I could develop items to measure it. So in, in my model, I define it not only as kindness, but also as including mindfulness and a sense of common humanity. In other words, we need to be willing to be to turn toward and be with our pain, with mindfulness, even though maybe we don't want to. Usually either we ignore it, like we stiff up our lip it, or else we get so absorbed in it, we have no space from which to step outside of ourselves and say, hey, you're hurting, how can I help? So we need to have some space around the pain and be aware that it's there. So that's a mindfulness. And also really important is a sense of connectedness. In other words, even though the term is self-compassion, it's really there's really not a lot of self there. It's basically recognizing that all people are imperfect, all people make mistakes, all people have struggles in their life, and it's normal as part of the shared human condition to experience pain. Now, we know this rationally, but oftentimes people feel, when, especially when they made a mistake or done something they regret, but even if, if just something's difficult in their life, People tend to feel that everyone else in the world is leading a normal, perfect life, and it's just me who's made this mistake or just me who's having such a hard time. And that's when instead of self-compassion, it's more self-pity. And self-pity isn't very helpful because it's a very narrow, self-focused stance. Self-compassion is, it broadens the stance of saying, hey, we're all in this together. We're all doing the best we can. And so those, from my point of view, those three elements all need to be there in order for it to be self-compassion and to, to be really healthy. So it's interesting that you're saying self-pity is kind of the absence of those things, because I don't know that I would necessarily think of pity as the kind of opposite end of the continuum from compassion, removing the, the, the self piece of it, but just looking at the spectrum, like pity to compassion doesn't feel like those are the polar opposites, but I, I see how it makes sense in this example. No, yeah, they aren't polar opposites. So you could imagine if I had pity for you versus I had compassion for you, mm -hmm. what would be the difference? Which one would you prefer? Certainly the compassion, because it, it creates more of a sense that we're in it together, to your point, as exactly. opposed to... Pity, you might feel sorry for someone. And so they're, they're similar. It's not like they're... I wouldn't say they're polar opposites, mm -hmm. but that whether or not there's connection makes a huge difference mm -hmm. because it means you're, you're winding the circle. It's not I'm, not... I'm not feeling sorry for you. I'm feeling, hey, I've been there. And same with self-compassion. I'm not feeling sorry for myself. I'm recognizing, hey, this everyone experiences this. And that, that connectedness is really important because 
just like pity doesn't feel good for other people, self-pity has a lot of problems. It can lead to rumination. Mm-hmm. It can lead to not recognizing your connection to others and actually make you feel more alone and make things worse. Ironically, mm-hmm. it's this connectedness that oftentimes people don't realize is essential to compassion, but it really is. It's key to what makes it compassion and not pity. Yeah. And I think that going back to what you said earlier at the beginning, compassion for others seems to be something that comes more easily to a lot of people than compassion for ourselves. Most of us are, you know, suffer from that experience of being too hard on ourselves. I don't know actually anybody that I can think of that I would say, oh yeah, no, no, they're they're pretty kind to themselves. And but what is the yeah. difference? And you've you've spoken about this a little bit, but what would you say is the difference between the compassion for yourself and a sense of self-esteem? Because I think that it just having understood now how you think about them, they actually are quite different. But at first pass, they seem yeah. like they would be the same. They seem they seem similar. And so when I first actually introduced the, the construct into the field of psychology, I, I positioned it as an alternative to self-esteem. Because of the field of psychology, self-esteem, by the way, to define the term, it's a way of judging or evaluating yourself positively, whereas self-compassion is a way of being kind and supportive to yourself when you're suffering. So so that's one difference. But also self-esteem, although it's associated with mental health, if you have high as opposed to low self-esteem, there's actually a lot of problems with how people get their sense of self-worth. Either they need to be special and above average. Right? It's not okay to be average, which means you're always comparing yourself to others. For instance, we know that why do young kids start to bully others? Partly is to boost their self-esteem so they feel like the cool kid compared to the nerdy or loser kid, right? And that can continue into adulthood. I was going to say, it doesn't um, even, it's not restricted to kids at this point, which is sad it, and true. Exactly. Exactly. Um, narcissism, a lot of people in their need for self-esteem become narcissistic. Their, their egos are very fragile. They can't accept any negative information. They see themselves through these really rose-colored glasses, and they can maybe be very ego-defensive, which can be a problem. Where self-compassion, you can admit, oh, yeah, I made a mistake. I'm so sorry. You don't have to defend yourself because you aren't pretending to be other than you are, other than a flawed human being doing the best you can. Probably the biggest difference, though, is both self-compassion and self-esteem provide a sense of worthiness, of self-worth. But the self-worth of the self-compassion is unconditional. It comes simply by being alive. You know, with the, the moment a baby is born, it's not like they've got to go to graduate school to be worthy of compassion. You know, just because a baby is a human being who feels and experiences life, that sense of worthiness is intrinsic to being human. Whereas self-esteem is usually contingent. It depends on, you know, the common things we base our self-esteem on is how we look. Are we pretty enough? Are we attractive enough? Do other people like us or not? And then performance. Am I successful at those things that are important to me in life? And so you might say self-esteem is a fair weather friend. It's there for you in the good times and deserts you just when you need it most, which Mm. is when you failed. Whereas self-compassion is a stable friend. And the research shows that the sense of self-worth that comes from self-compassion is much more stable over time than self-esteem. How do you measure that? Like, what is the research or what is the indicator? And how do you kind of, how are you able to validate that over time? 
Yeah. So, um, so again, back in 2003, I published an article defining self-compassion and a scale to measure it, self-report mm-hmm. scale and their items. Like, you know, I tend to be kind to myself. Or I oh, tend yes. To be I really took your quiz and I did not do so well. So we'll get into that for sure. <laughs> yeah. So um, and so for, for a long time, in the beginning, that was the main way people did self-compassion research, but now it's gotten much more broader. So for instance, a common way we may look at self-compassion is we have people think about something, maybe they're feeling badly about themselves or, or some, some challenge in their life. And we have them write a paragraph of mindfulness, just kind of turning toward it, uh, recognizing that this is hard, a paragraph with common humanity, reminding themselves that they aren't alone, that this is part of the human experience. And then maybe a paragraph with kind words, like the type of words they may say to a friend in a similar circumstance. And in the lab, we can see, you know, people who get those instructions versus like no instructions, how that changes their response to things. And then the final way we look at it is um, through intervention studies. We actually train people to be more self-compassionate through programs like the one I developed with a colleague called the Mindful Self-Compassion Program, or there's lots of other training programs. And then we can see how that changes, you know, more long-term outcomes. Mm. And luckily all the findings converge and that, you know, self-compassion is strongly linked uh, both to mental well-being and physical health. Because of course, when you're well mentally, when you aren't depressed or anxious and you're happy and satisfied with your life, you sleep better, your immune, fact, your immune system operates better. And then you also, you know, have fewer aches and colds and pains and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's we're seeing over and over again that link between better mental health and and how it informs physical well being. I don't, I mean, I don't know if necessarily the reverse is true. You could argue that it all is holistic, but certainly getting your mind right can help. Well, no, I guess you could argue. I mean, physical exercise does have quite an impact. Yeah, on, if you have a good night's sleep, we know how yeah, that affects sure. our mood versus we can't for sleep. Sure. So yeah, it's reciprocal for sure. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say that I'm assuming that women are um, in a much different group in terms of the the incidence of lack of self-compassion than men. Is that a fair statement? Well, it's actually the difference is pretty small, but it's very consistent. Mm-hmm. Um, so women have slightly less self-compassion than the men. It's, it's not huge, but it, again, over and over and over again, we find it. And it's interesting because if you think about it, compassion is part of the traditional female gender role. And if you look at my workshops, 80% of the people who come are women. And so even though women, you might say, feel more comfortable with compassion as a, as a thing to cultivate, women feel less entitled to meet their own needs. Mm-hmm. The women are so socialized to have compassion for others. And so they have slightly less self-compassion and actually a fairer degree higher compassion for others than men. And by the way, just to be clear, I'm not talking about biological sex. I'm not even talking about gender identity. I'm talking about people who have been socialized, raised, put in the mm-hmm. pink box or the blue box, right? Mm-hmm. And that's really all these differences come about as gender role socialization. So people raised as boys are socialized that, you know, compassion is kind of weak, but they're worthy of getting their needs met. So that maybe they meet their own needs. Whereas people raised as girls are socialized, compassion is important, it's just really important is to sacrifice, to give to others, but always to give to others first and not yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but some of the research I've done shows that um, kind of how much people adhere to gender role stereotypes impacts the differences. So, so women who are more, for instance, more androgynous, 
who feel more of a balance of the traditional masculine and feminine have the same levels of self-compassion as, as um, men do. So hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. And in some of my latest work, I've been talking about um, two different aspects of self-compassion and then you get even stronger gender differences. So there's tender self-compassion, which is more about acceptance. We accept ourselves unconditionally. We accept our, the fact that life's hard sometimes. But self-compassion, alleviating suffering, is not, it's not only about acceptance. It's, it's also about taking action. So I call that fierce compassion, fierce mm-hmm. self-compassion. Checking ourselves, you know, standing up to injustice, motivating change, meeting our needs. And there what's happened, unfortunately, is gender role socialization has, it's like yin and yang. They're supposed to go together. But society allows boys to be fierce, but not tender. Boys get called names if they're too tender, too sensitive, which harms boys and men because they don't have access to the healing power of compassion and Mm -hmm. acceptance. On the other hand, girls are allowed to be tender toward others, not necessarily to themselves. And we don't like women who are too action-oriented, who are too agentic, who are too ambitious, who get angry. And so the fierce side is is harder to access for people raised as women. And so uh, really what self-compassion is, you might say it's also a political act because it's about radical authenticity. Every person, regardless of gender identity, you know, who, who they are, they can have they can express in their own unique way both their fierce and tender sides, and when people do, they're much more whole and complete. That's so interesting. I'm just taking a note because you said radical authenticity, and I think that's so. I mean, I feel like we're culturally definitely starting to get more comfortable with using the word radical in in so many settings, but it does yes. feel like there are certain settings where it's super appropriate um, and and being as authentic as possible, definitely feels like a good use of it. Yeah. And that's one of the most consistent findings of the research, actually, is people, especially people who are helped to be more self-compassionate, one of the biggest outcomes is they can be more authentic. And that's partly because their self-worth isn't so, it doesn't depend as much on people liking them. Their sense of self-worth is internal, which means, and, and also that care for oneself makes you realize that actually my particular needs and wants are important. Yeah. And I have the right express them and, and follow my interests. And that's one of the reasons authenticity gets so increased. Yeah. Ugh, well, and you tie in this whole notion of many women, I think, myself certainly included, being programmed in this kind of people pleaser um, behavior, yes. which is very, yeah. very hard to undo, very hard to get yeah. over. It's It's actually, I think it's so kind of subversive that you don't recognize it for so long. And then once you do recognize it, it's like, holy shit, I can't believe that I've been allowing, yes. you know, and whatever it is, whatever, you know, whoever it is that you're pleasing, oftentimes it's everybody around you and there's kind of no, no prisoners. And we think we're being good people. Yes. And so exactly. it kind of comes from an altruistic desire. I want to be helpful. I want to be good. But if it's not authentic, then well, you, know, if it's, you really if it's hate. to the detriment of your own needs and that's right. Sometime exactly. a week later, you're like, oh my God, I didn't realize that that thing I said had absolutely nothing to do with taking care of me. So that's right. And then what happens is people burn out because they give and they give and give. The giving's one way. And so compassion needs to flow inward and outward. And, you know, it's not like if you, it's not like if you give more self compassion, more compassion to yourself, you'll have less to give to others. Right. You'll actually have more resources to give to others. It's additive. 
Um, and yeah. that's why there's also big literature showing that caregivers, like professional caregivers or parents who are more self-compassionate are more able to care for others and to sustain doing so without burning out. I mean, that's such an incredible example. I think all the time about these people who work as caregivers for the sick and the elderly. And a friend of mine is yeah. is an end-of-life doula. And I look at yeah. her and I'm just like, I, I can't even fathom what it is that you absorb and take into your world and then still function as like a normal kind of cool, fun girl in the world that doesn't have this massive burden. So arguably you're saying either... It's not, it is, I mean, is it chicken and egg? Did she start with this level of self-compassion and then became so able to give it so freely or did it train itself in that work for her to reflect it back on herself? Yeah, yeah, it's a really interesting question. I, I don't know your friend, but, you know, one thing started out, well, one thing started out with the, the difference between compassion and empathy. Yeah, this is really like important when it comes to caregiving because compassion is caring about suffering. Empathy is feeling suffering or feeling emotions could be positive or negative. So it's not really, there's this term called compassion fatigue. People get fatigued with giving compassion. It's not compassion fatigue, it's empathy fatigue. Mm. If you're a professional caregiver and you know, you're constantly dealing with the suffering of others, then, and if you're empathic, that means you're sensitive, you feel the emotions of others. Right. It can be draining, but compassion isn't draining. Caring isn't draining, especially when you care for yourself because the fact that you're feeling the suffering of others, right? So compassion is a rewarding emotion. So you might say compassion is a buffer against empathy fatigue because you can actually say, this is so draining. Oh, you know, you're there for yourself. It's like you care about yourself because you're feeling the pain of others. And that care actually is a rewarding emotion that gives you a buffer from being totally burnt out and also allows you to say something like, hey, I need a break or these, you know, my needs need to be met. So that's part of it, but in the moment. So for instance, my son's autistic, right? I mean, he's doing really well now, but when he was younger, uh, he had really difficult, difficult tantrums. And when he, when I was resonating with his tantrums, it was very, very painful. I would intentionally give myself compassion for the pain of that, you know, just, just being an autism mother, but also just the stress, especially if it's having a really loud tantrum. Mm. Um, what I found is it allowed me to stay present, right, without burning out. It also did something very interesting because empathy goes two ways. So I was feeling his pain, but he was feeling my state of mind. And so when I was like frustrated or, or really just exhausted, and that happens sometimes, it seems like he would get his attention to be more intense but when I could give myself passion and kindness and understanding and care because it was hard for me to be his mother, he would feel my internal calmer, more loving mind state and he would calm down. So that's why it's so important for caregivers to have self-compassion because we don't only impact ourselves. We also impact everyone we interact with because that's the way the brain works. You know, our neurology is interpersonal. You affect me, I affect you. We kind of you know, when we join, when we talk, we're, we're resonating with each other. So it's, it's you know, I, some people think that self-compassion is selfish and it's like, no, it's yeah. the opposite. This is best gift you can give to others. This is what you carry into the world. Is your internal mind state loving, calm, warm, caring? Or is it like judgmental or critical or full of shame? Is that what you're carrying into the world? Which is a bigger gift to others, you know? Yeah. It's such a, I mean, I think it's such a fine line though, because 
There is, you know, looking out for yourself and feeling um, compassionate towards yourself and and essentially caring, like self-care, taking care of yourself. But then where do you draw the line? I mean, you, you we, we spoke about it a little bit earlier. Um, from that to being like only kind of self-serving or I guess on the opposite end of it, where do you draw the line between, you know, giving yourself the break and then also just becoming like a doormat and saying, you know, and just like kind of rolling over to all of it. Yeah. So I've actually done some research on this, looking at how people um, deal with conflicts between like the need of the self and the need of another. So self-compassion people, they don't put their needs first, but they don't put their needs last. They always try to compromise. How could, you know, my needs are important and your needs are important. You aren't saying you're more important than others, but you aren't saying you're less important either. Yeah, that's interesting. And then if you come from the stance that everyone's needs are important, then that naturally leads to try to come up with a creative solution to meet everyone's needs. And sometimes it's not possible. So like when mm-hmm. I was raising my son, I couldn't meet all my needs. He was an autistic child. You know, I had to put him first, but I didn't put him first to the extent that I allowed, that I lost myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I was kept myself. I, I did whatever I can to take care of myself, even if it were just emotionally. And maybe I couldn't take the break I wanted, but emotionally, I could give myself warmth and support. And it made all the difference. And so, really, compassion is also a wisdom practice. Mm-hmm. And actually, in the, from the Buddhist perspective, compassion is absolutely a wisdom practice. It sees the complexity of how causes and conditions come together. So, for instance, if you have compassion for someone, you might also realize. Well, they aren't totally choosing their actions. Their actions are influenced by so many things that they didn't choose, like their upbringing, their genetics, you know, the cultural environment, their current stress levels. So many things go into impacting how we act as we do. And compassion sees the bigger picture, sees the larger situation. And that wisdom also helps us do things like saying, well, what's the wisest thing to do in this situation? Sometimes it means, yeah. Sometimes I get, I need to give up my need. That's the wisest mm-hmm. thing to do. But sometimes it isn't, right? But it's coming from wisdom as opposed to this idea that, you know, to be a good mother, I need to just give up all my needs, something mm-hmm. like that, which really doesn't help anyone. No, it doesn't. Were you doing this work before you learned that you were going to have a son that was autistic? Yes. Oh. Yes, thank goodness. About seven goodness. years. Yeah. He, he actually, um, the day he got diagnosed, I was headed for a meditation retreat. And so I just spent the whole time practicing self-compassion, you yeah. know, just kind of allowing myself feel the feelings of fear. And I'll admit it, there are feelings of disappointment. It's not the plan I had, but I wanted to be a mother. You know, all those difficult feelings came up and I just allowed them and mindfulness to experience what I was experiencing. It really gave myself care and warmth and kindness and support. Um, and it really allowed me to get through it um, much more easily than I think it, I w- would oh have God. otherwise. I mean, what an incredible gift that you gave yourself without even realizing it and that having that toolbox mm-hmm. already available um, for right. whatever the, the time might be. Um, and all the difficult things, and there have been many. <laughs> yeah, of course. My, it's, it's my of course. best friend, you know. Yeah. So in terms of some of the tactical stuff, I would love to get into that a little bit. Like how can somebody who's listening right now and resonating with some of this feel like they can 
because it's not as easy as just kind of like flipping a switch and saying, okay, now I'm going to be more compassionate. Like you do have to have some tools and some training. Um, I did, I mentioned that you have a quiz on your website, um, which is selfcompassion.org. Um, yes, that, uh, is interesting because I do think of myself as somebody who's at least in tune with the notion of, of, you know, looking out for myself and being kind and compassionate. But like I said, I did not score so well. Um, and it's interesting that it's broken out into different, uh, I don't know if they're, they're categories or subcategories where you have like self-kindness, self-judgment, common humanity, yes. isolation, over-identification. I scored very high on over-identification, so I don't know what that says about me. Um, but can you talk through a little bit of what those components are and how someone can use those as their starting toolkit? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, basically, so self-compassion in, involves just kind of by definition, and not all, all psychologists define it the same way, but the way I define it, you're, when you struggle, and that struggle can be either... Um, because of a personal inadequacy or failure or mistake, or might be just something in your life that happens that's hard, so that you're kind rather than harshly judgmental. You feel connected to this larger humanity as opposed to feeling isolated and separate. And you're mindful, which means you can have some space around the emotion instead of being totally lost in it. Um, And so just knowing what's involved in and of itself can be helpful. So for instance, um, One practice is called the self-compassion break, which means when you're hurting in some way, you're just mindful of the pain. You might say something to yourself like, this is really hard right now, you know? And once you say that, instead of just being lost in the the pain, there's a little part of you that's just stepped outside of yourself and that's aware that you're feeling pain. And that gives you a little bit of space so you aren't so fused with the pain. So this is really hard right now. I'm struggling. Um, and then you remember the common humanity that I'm not alone. It feels like it's just me, but it's not. You know, this is part of the human experience. Nothing's wrong with me for feeling this way. I think that's the hardest that's part, worse. I would say, for myself. That's the hardest part is like, you know, that logically and practically speaking, that is true. That, that you know, that many, many humans suffer in the uni- in the way that it feels unique to you. But when you're in that moment, yeah. it is very, very hard yeah. to accept that. It's hard. And that's why it is a practice because the, the brain naturally goes there, but you, but you know, part of you knows, right? And so, but here's the thing, um, the kindness. So there's really three ways into the kindness. Some people can just be, can just be kind to yourself. You can imagine someone very kind, like a grandparent or a mentor, or, you know, even a spiritual figure being kind to you. What would this person say to me right now? Or, you could imagine being kind to someone you cared about. Like, what would I say to my really good friend if they were in this exact same situation? And the moment we do that, we know what to say. It's actually not a new skill. What's different, what's challenging is remembering to use it with ourselves. Mm-hmm. But most of us, is, by the time we've reached adulthood, we know how to be kind and supportive. We had experience of helping people through tough times. You know, so if you imagine what would I say to my dear friend if they were in exactly the same situation I was right now, it's pretty easy, actually. Mm-hmm. You could probably see your picture and say, I'm here for you. It's going to be okay. You know, this will pass. Um, I believe in you. I care about you. And so we know what to say to others. So we just have to, it's really the, rem- it's not only just remembering, it's also giving ourselves permission. Um, and part of the reason it's hard to give ourselves permission is our culture doesn't teach us it's a good thing. Our culture says, especially people raise this woman, you're supposed to be you know, kind to others, not yourself. 
You think it's going to make us lazy, unmotivated. It's going to make us weak. You know, it's going to be selfish. The research shows exactly the opposite. It makes us stronger, more resilient, makes us more able to give to others. It, um, it allows us to adopt healthy behaviors. We aren't lazy because we care about ourselves. We'll do what's difficult because we care. And then really importantly, it's a, it's a more effective motivator than self-criticism. So just as an example, just published a study last week. We taught self-compassion to NCAA athletes, you know, so that when they had mistakes or problems in their training routine or in a game, they were kind and supportive to themselves as opposed to, you know, just beating themselves up. It actually improved their performance, hmm. right? Because when you accept yourself, then you still, they still wanted to be number one, but it's not like they had to be number one to be worthy. They wanted to be number one because they cared. It was like their game, their sport, their love, their passion. So that the source of the motivation moves from, if I'm, if I don't do it, I'll, I'll be a loser to, I want to do it because I care. And when that happens and you don't reach your goals, then you can say, okay, so I didn't reach my goals. I, I, I fell short. It's okay. It's only human. What can I learn? How can I grow? Mm. Whereas if you're like, oh, I'm such a loser, I'm so, I'm so then you can't learn when you're full of shame. Shame actually shuts down your ability to learn and grow. So compassion actually at the end of the day is a more effective motivator than what we're used to, which is self-criticism. But we don't know that and we're afraid of it and we're mm. we're afraid to give it a try. And then, so there are big blocks to self-compassion that don't exist, for instance, to compassion for others. Yeah, I think, but those blocks are enormously challenging to get over. You were just saying, I mean, we associate that level of of self-kindness or softness with laziness and with failure and with kind of um, complacence. These are like all, you know, terrible, hideous words in our culture. But that's why that's why you don't need to recognize fierce self-compassion. That's why my last book is called Fierce Self-Compassion, because there's this action side, this powerful side, this fear side that comes from care. I call it mama bear self-compassion. Mm-hmm. Like you want to see someone who's strong and who's fierce and like, you know, lift a car if they need to, try threatening a mother's children. You know, that, so care and love can have, can be incredibly powerful. And that is a part of self-compassion, but people don't think of it. And that's why it's just important to remember. It's not just acceptance. Acceptance is part of it. We accept ourselves but we don't accept all our behaviors and we don't accept all our situations. That wouldn't be compassionate. Mm-hmm. But the compassionate thing to do is to try to make a change. But again, not out of a sense of inadequacy, but out of love. Um, and it carries us through more effectively yeah. in the long run. Yeah, for sure. I just, uh, like I said, I feel like I see so many examples, you know, again, myself included, where you just get into these thought patterns that are so familiar and so second nature that it's very hard to undo them. It's very hard to even recognize them in the first place, let alone then be able to step back and try to kind of go down a different ski slope. Well, that's that's the place to start with self-compassion. So you recognize the pain of it. You recognize, I mean, I even hear it in your voice and, and so common, kind of like, you know, like, oh, again, and I, I, you know, I wish I wouldn't do this. I know I'm harming myself. You can give compassion to that. Yeah. You know, yeah course some acceptance well, you're just doing the best you can you aren't choosing to be this way this is your culture this is probably there's also some evolutionary reasons we do this so we go into fight flight or freeze mode and we fight ourselves we flee into shame we freeze and get stuck you know so our brains are designed to be this way 
So we don't need to judge ourselves for not being compassionate. We can have compassion for ourselves for how difficult it is to be Mm self-compassionate. And then once you do that, then you're being self-compassionate. So it's like you start where you are, whatever, whatever, wherever you notice the pain, even if it's the pain of not being able to be compassionate, give yourself compassion for that. You aren't alone. That's for sure. You're in the vast majority, right? You can be aware of the pain and you can be, you know, be kind of kind to yourself mm-hmm. because of that and because you care. And eventually, eventually the care starts to kind of, it kind of starts to seep in, starts to seep into the patterns. And they become less powerful over time. They're still there. They'll never go away. They lose some of their power. Once we give the the light of awareness and love and kindness and connectedness, it starts to soften those patterns so they don't have as much control over us. And so then that manifests in, in your view, does that manifest in being able to sort of just manage adversity and challenge in a different way? Like what is the ultimate end result of being able to practice this effectively? Yeah, well, the end result. So so normally when we get, when we meet a lot of challenges or we feel really inadequate or we fail or, you know, we do that behavior yet again, you know, um, what happens is we get overwhelmed by those negative feelings. And then we get into a negative spiral. We may become depressed. We may become anxious, right? The ultimate extreme people may consider suicide, right? Mm-hmm. Just to escape the pain of it. So what self-compassion is, in some ways you can think of it as a strength that helps us to hold pain. It allows us to be with pain. That's what it is, with suffering. How are we with suffering? It's like we're, we're an ally, we're a support, as opposed to an enemy inside. And that support, that friendship, allows us to handle the tough stuff without being derailed by it. And that leads to better mental health. It also has other things, like I say, better physical health, more motivation, um, uh, you know, healthier behaviors, more, more positive relationships. I mean, really the benefits of it go on and on. So another benefit of self-compassion is greater happiness and life satisfaction, more positive emotions, which is funny, given that by definition is how we relate to suffering. But when you hold pain with love, which is another way to think of what self-compassion is, your awareness isn't just consumed by the pain. There's also the love holding the pain. And those feelings of love and kindness and warmth and connectedness um, and presence, those are actually positive emotions. And so because your awareness is also tapping into these positive emotions, that creates an upward spiral where you can also say, well, actually, you know, here are these positive things. So, you know, the glass is half a full as well as half empty. And then that leads to thing like, things like greater optimism and hope. Right. So but it doesn't it go as far as narcissism. Sorry, what? I said, but it doesn't go as far as narcissism. Well, no, because if you think of what narcissism is, it's not seeing things clearly. Yeah. Right. A narcissist by definition, or you might even say positive thinking, things are great even when they aren't. That's not self-compassion. It's not compassion. It's delusion. Compassion sees things clearly. It says you made a big mistake or this really hurts. This is really hard. And I care about you. And you're doing the best you can. And how can I help? How can I help you improve? How can we do better next time? All those messages acknowledge the truth. Right. But they, they, they give us, um, 
they also give us a way out because we are, you know, because the truth is multifaceted. The truth isn't just the negative. There is, there are these positive things. You know, it's a part of us that made a mistake. It doesn't mean that we are a mistake. Right. You know, yeah, we may have failed, but it doesn't mean we are a failure. So you were talking about over-identification. The brain tends to do that. It tends to take whatever it's experiencing in the moment and believe that that's ultimate reality for all time. But in fact, it's just a momentary arising and it will pass away, especially if we give ourselves the tools to help ourselves. Yeah. You know, to learn, to grow, to find meaning out of the difficulty. It's so interesting that, I mean, this is obviously coming from a clinical and scientific approach, but there's so much overlap with the more kind of spiritual, mystical concept of, you know, whether it's Buddhism or or these principles that just kind of tell you to live in the moment and let go of the attachment and all of it. It's yeah. so fascinating that these two concepts live in completely parallel universes where, you know, somebody might argue and say, that's a bunch of like woo-woo bullshit over there because I've got the science to prove it, but it's all the same. Um, yeah, well, of course, I learned about self-compassion in a Buddhist practice. So for me, it was always mixed, right? So, you know, science didn't come up with the idea. It, it is, I think, at the heart of all religious traditions, this idea of love for self and others. Um, but yeah, the data makes a difference because otherwise people could say it's just woo-woo. There's so much research now on mindfulness and compassion and self-compassion that um, it's an empirically supported, scientifically yeah. <laughs> validated practice that works, even the physiological measures, reducing cortisol, increasing heart rate variability. Yeah. Right. And that's the stuff yeah. I think that the people, like the skeptics and the cynics need to hear is know there yes. are actual measurable results biologically that shows you, you know, your stress hormones yes. are going down when you're in this state, yeah. um, which I like yes. because, you know, people, it's very easy to shake a finger at some of this woo-woo stuff until somebody has the data to prove it that it's real. Yeah. Um, but the only way you really know is if you practice it and see for yourself, well, how does yeah. it change things? Yeah. You know, and then you'll really realize, okay, I see. Yeah. This, well, that's, so that was here. my question. That was what I was going to kind of wrap us up with was like, what can somebody do tonight when they're going to bed and they kind of get themselves into a place of, you know, I want to try something different. I want some new tools. Yeah. And what is the self-talk that they are going to, what's the lecture they're going to give themselves tonight, their bedtime story? Right. Well, so at a very concrete level, I've got a lot of free practices, little downloadable recordings on my website, selfcompassion.org. So that's one thing you can do, but just without even doing that, a physical touch, believe it or not, is a really important way to convey self-compassion. And that's because as human beings, touch evolved as a signal of compassion. Babies, they can't speak to their parents. The way parents communicate to babies that they care is through touch. So we know, for instance, like putting your hand in your heart or your face or giving yourself physical touch, it allows yourself to kind of um, be present with yourself. It changes the physiology, like reduces cortisol, increases heart rate variability. And that's one very easy way. You can, you can imagine that you're like literally with your pain. Maybe, maybe like you feel something in your gut, you can put your hands on your gut and just hold it. That's one way you can do it very simply. Um, but another really easy thing to do is just like what I said, ask yourself. What would I say to a good friend I cared about? Or what would my good friend say to me? Because we have the scripts here. We, we don't, it's not rapid science. It's actually pretty simple. We know what to say. We know how to use our tone of voice. We know how to use our bodies. It's just that we practice it with others and not ourselves. Um, but that's the good news. It's really not very difficult. Uh, it's about giving ourselves permission and remembering to be there for ourselves as well as others. 
I love it. I love it. Except that I'm probably going to take this recording with you saying it to me and just put it next to my bed. Yeah. <laughs> no, this is fascinating. We have a lot of recorded practices and meditations. Some people, some people find it easier just to hit play. Yeah. But, Right. But then you're kind of losing the whole goal here, which is that you need to be able to say these things to yourself yeah. and not rely on someone else. But if you want to just right. like continue to listen to this podcast and give us the downloads, that's fine too. Um, okay. Well, this is, um, as always, incredibly informative and enlightening. And, and I'm so pleased and honored to be able to, to hear all of this from you. Because um, again, to your point, it's very simple, easy, free type of practice that actually does really yield meaningful results. Um, so thank you. And where should we send people to to learn more from you through your books and, and um, studies? Well, and also just acknowledge you, Erica, you've been very vulnerable and I really appreciate that. Like, <laughs> That's kind of my reason, Oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. And no, it's really, it's, 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 a, it's, it's really important to be vulnerable and honest. And I appreciate thank that you. with you. Thank you. Um, yeah. So people, probably the easiest thing is just Google self-compassion. You'll find me. I got in early, but selfcompassion.org. Nice. Well done. I'm like links to my books and I've got research. If you're a science nerd, you can take the self-compassion test. You can, you know, hear downloadable practices. So that's probably the best place to start. Cool. I'm going to take yeah. the test again in like six months and hopefully, <laughs> hopefully compare my <laughs> scores. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Well, thank you, Kristen Neff, selfcompassion.org. This is very, very important um, and special work that you're doing. Yeah. Thanks, Erica. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening to All Too Well, guys. And as always, I am accepting stars, reviews, all of the above. They don't cost you anything and they mean a lot to me. So if you do have time, head on over to Apple Podcasts and throw me a few stars and, uh, you know, just do a good turn. Thanks. Thanks.